Hello, I'm Matt Pryor of the Get Up Kids, and this is Vagrant Records, 25 Years on the Streets, where we tell the oral history of the label by the artists, fans, and insiders. In this episode, we're going to tell the story of Hot Rod Circuit and Hey Mercedes, rounding out the Heroes and Villains saga. Hot Rod Circuit, or Hot Rod Circus, or Pot Rod Circuit, were started in Alabama and eventually relocated to Connecticut. Our paths first crossed at CMJ at the now long gone Coney Island High in 1999. Our mutual booking agent, the always encouraging Andrew Ellis on the side of the stage yelling at them to say the fucking band name. We started touring together soon thereafter. You know, whenever people ask me what the common thread was between all the vagrant bands of this era, I've never really had an answer. It's only recently that I figured it out. We all absolutely love Hot Rod Circuit. We love their songs, and maybe more importantly, we love them as people. They were arguably the hardest working, hardest partying, best hang in the scene. But we'll get to that. For now, let's begin in Alabama with one Michael Andrew Jackson. By the way, that third voice you'll hear in this conversation, that dulcet baritone, is criminal mastermind and a producer of this fine podcast, Jesse Cannon. First of all, why did you move to Connecticut? You and Casey are both from Alabama. Yeah, we started the band in Alabama. We had just gotten to a point where, you know, we'd done everything we could really do here. There wasn't a lot around us. So my ex-wife, she was my wife at the time, she went up to visit her mom in Connecticut. And she got up there and she, I forgot what paper it was. It was like, you know, one of the, like the local music papers. And she picked it up and it just had like listings for the Webster and um, all the shows in New York and all the surrounding areas in Boston. And she just saw this like, holy shit, there's something going on up here where you could, it's like a circle. You could just drive around in a circle and play all weekend. And uh, so initially it was kind of her idea, which is kind of weird. She was just like, if you're going to do this shit, you might as well come up here and do it where you can actually do it. And I went to band practice that night and was just kind of like balls out and just said, hey, what do you guys think about moving to Connecticut <laughs> or Boston? But it just and literally like they all looked at me like, what the fuck? And Casey was like, I mean, I'm in like just straight up. And uh, everybody was pretty much gung ho. Uh, Wes at the time was had just gone through uh, our drummer had gone through a divorce. So I think that was like, fuck it. I'm ready to go do something. You know, I just think it's funny that it's Connecticut. Not that there's anything wrong with Connecticut. Yeah, I, I love it, it there. Well, but just that you're like, guys, we're going to go and make it. You go. Yeah. LA, well, I guess Chicago, the offer New was, York. her mom had just bought like this big place and it had like a apartment underneath it. And she basically said, you know, if you, she was trying to convince her to come up there more than anything else. But she said, you know, if the guys come up here and they want to do it, um, they can crash there until they get, you know, jobs and get places. And that's basically what we did. And we didn't do it. We probably stayed there for a couple months before everybody kind of jumped on and got jobs and ended up in apartments. But it didn't take us very long. Once we moved there, we were so freaking new that nobody knew anything about us. So when we played a show, everybody was like, who the hell are these guys? You know, was Casey already doing the uh Casey was always a madman. Okay. I mean, That was the reason Casey's in my band. I mean, (laughs) I met Casey because I was in a band and we used to record at this little old guy, um, Jim Marr. It's called Zero Return. This uh, little studio by some train tracks, which sounds like a terrible place (laughs) to have a studio. I mean, literally on some train tracks. It's basically having it next to a rock, like a rock quarry or something. I mean, it's so funny because you'll hear people, a lot of people tell stories about this guy. It's just literally this old, just imagine the most rundown shack you've ever seen and inside this house has a neve console and about 30 cats 
and just like you walk through the t- the bathroom to get to the drum room. It's just like one the whole house is a studio kind of thing. And he lives there and just has like a bed in the corner. And it's ridiculous. But uh, one day we were recording out there with my band and Jim's like, man, I had this kid come in the other day. His mom had to drive him out here and check him into a hotel. And uh, he's 15 years old. And he played like the first 20 seconds of it. And I was like, who the fuck is this kid? Like he's he was singing, playing guitar and just playing. It almost sounded like Modest Mouse built to spill like really early stuff, like uh, Little Dipper kind of vibe, um, if you know what I'm talking about. It very like indie rock, but kind of pavementy in your face. And he had great lyrics. And I just said, I want this kid's number. And I just called him from the studio. I was like, dude, I just heard your shit. Let's do some shows together. And we started playing together. So you, he, and Wes just at the drop of a hat move out to Connecticut? Yeah, yeah. So we just you know started playing together. And they just said, fuck it. We got some songs. Let's move out there. The bass player we had didn't come. So my ex played bass for us until we met Jay. She didn't want to be in the band. She, we, you know, she had kids and other things to do. She, just, she was a bass player and wanted to help us out. So she played bass until we met Jay and then that's pretty much it. And then Wes is in the band for a little while longer and then you end up with uh, Porman. He he played on the first, uh, the EP, the first record. He toured with us for a couple years and then when we started to work on the next record, that's when he left the band and we had uh, Mike Porman come in for a little while, but he was in another band and he had some tours committed. So that's when we got, Duggins was kind of in and out of the band. Duggins did a tour with us and then when we got home from tour, Mike joined the band and was in the band for quite a while. So I remember, so I met you at CMJ and Ellis was yelling at you. And then I feel like immediately thereafter, we were playing shows together. Like, Oh yeah. I mean, you guys were like one of the first bands we just started playing shows with all the time. We became tour mates and drinking buddies, quickly learning that the wonderful madness of the HRC wasn't just on stage. Everyone but Mike Porman, the band's drummer, who was straight edge at the time. I spoke to bassist, singer, and retired party animal Jay Russell about it. I think there was an element of like of hot rod circuit that you had to like embrace the chaos to a certain degree to to love you as people. And it was it's kind of funny that Porman was in the band because he's just he was such a square, you know, like it just Boston hardcore. I imagine there's straight edge, yeah, love, yeah, love Porman. No, I agree. <laughs> he is. I would have to say uh, now, full circle, I am that mm-hmm. dude. I I am driving everybody around. You know, I'm no angel but I haven't had a drink in 13 years, 14 yeah, you, years. You lived enough for a lifetime <laughs> in that time, <laughs> probably. <laughs> we had, we had a good time, but now, you know, Porman, Porman drinks and, and parties and, and I will, you know, get Casey off the minivan and apologize to the mm-hmm. sound guy for, for him breaking their, his bowl and, you know, get, <laughs> get Porman up out of the merch booth it's like it's funny things go full circle but back in the day yeah that was that was a i can't believe he lasted as long as he did in the band it's like you guys had a a deal where you were going to be drunk the first half of the band and he was going to be drunk the back half of the band (laughs) just switched signed in blood yeah it happened i don't know but mike porman sat with us in a yuma arizona jail while the u.s marshal was coming with felony charges and mike porman was fucking laughing the entire time that's you know he's just an awesome dude and he was the right guy to be in that band and and you know it's it's amazing but you know he's an amazing guy that's 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 just mike salt of the earth salt of the earth yes i think i've been in that yuma arizona jail too but that's another story (laughs) probably for similar reasons 
Before Vagrant, Hot Rod Circuit put out two records on Triple Crown Records, which was owned by Fred Feldman, who, like the aforementioned Andrew Ellis, is an executive producer of this podcast. Both Ellis and Fred were early supporters of the band. There was a transition there into Hot Rod Circuit and playing more gigs, but like shortly thereafter, and, and it seemed like months, we played a show at the Tune-In in New Haven, which is a is a legendary punk rock stronghold. It's gone. It's long gone, but um, you know that's where. I saw all all the bands that influenced my life growing up, and most of them were, you know, Connecticut, Boston, and New York hardcore shows. Um, but this was a show with a band on Triple Crown. It was they were like a pop punk band. They were super awesome oh, dudes as well. Oh, so yeah, we played. The band was Lounge, right? That's it. That's correct. Oh, okay. Or not a local, but a national touring ska band called Spring Hill Jack, which were friends of ours. And so they had us on that show, and everything kind of shot off from there. Ellis re- reached out to us. Fred and Ellis was kind of like a package team. I mean, our first mm-hmm. EP was out under Fred and Andrew's Montalban Hotel. Tuban Hotel, yeah, hell yeah. And Andrew started like kind of just helping us book some shows or you know book our own tour which shortly morphed into him booking us and you know for those who don't know Hot Rod Circuit and Andrew Ellis have a very father son love hate like stepchild that doesn't behave ever like super but but you love him because he's kind of a fun dude we have Mm -hmm. that relationship and we kind of have from the beginning so yeah that's what got us going like when did you meet egan and and kevin that's all through you guys really yeah 100 percent. all right well then we're done here jay so thank you (laughs) (laughs) now when hot rod signed we signed to your what was your subsidiary of vagrant records was our imprint yeah your imprint, no, right. I, I remember, because, and this is what I was telling Andy and, and Rich, too, when I talked to them, of just like, because we were like, yeah, Hot Rod signed into Heroes and Villains, and Rich was like, no, we've wanted to sign Hot Rod for forever, and we were just like, uh-uh, they're our friends, they're signed to our label, <laughs> they're part of our family. I know it was going, all that was going around at the same time, but if we're going to face the facts, Hot mm-hmm. Rod's not signing to Vagrant without the Get Up Kids being on there first. And I, I think that's probably well, the truth of it. I would say that's probably not because of our influence on Vagrant, but maybe that us signing to Vagrant made the label more able to sign. Because they were. No, I, mean, I agree they, with that. But we were going like, you know, I think for us the incentives were like where the label was growing and, and the anniversary were, were, were adding on. Um, because at the same time we were in talks with drive through. Okay. Right at the same time. And one was on the East coast and one was on the West coast. And you know, was drive through on the East coast. No, they were just, they just came out to, to strong Island to see a show. And, uh, we possibly rattled them in our van by doing a, ah. doing the, the interview in there and it probably, Smoking way too much weed or, or, you know, probably not the most professional setting. But anyway, we signed a vagrant. (laughs) Ellis isn't going to book your band just because your songs are good or you're popular or any of that shit. He has to see you play and make sure that you can put on a show. So he would set up gigs to check out the bands that he wanted to work with and see if they could hack it live. Calls me the next day and he's like, hey, man, these guys said you're really good. I want to check you out. So I'm going to book this show 
And it was that, oh, it was the guys from Texas is a reason, but it was their other New band, Rising Suns? New Rising Suns, exactly. So he booked two shows, one at the Tune-In and one at um, Mercury Lounge. So yeah, it's a little tiny place. Um, it's cool. But um, he booked us a show there. So we were going to play the two shows and he was going to come to both. And New Rising Suns didn't show up for the first show. That sounds about on point. So Ellis didn't show up. He was, you know, he called late. I'm going to see you tomorrow night. So we get down there. They don't show up for that show. And <laughs> it's literally, it's literally us playing for Ellis and like one or two other like ram, like the people got, go to the bar. Cause I, if I remember correctly, the bar is on the outside of the, where the band plays and you have to walk in, you know, so when you, when they walk out, it's just an empty room. Uh, so it's just us playing Ellis, just standing there staring at us the whole fucking time, you know, just like this shit stare. You know, I thought he hates us. Like what the fuck? And then uh, we get done. He offers me a beer and then he's like, I want to talk to you privately. And he takes me in some, I think there's like a back hallway back there. He takes me in a back hallway and he's like, I like you guys. He's like, I don't really have time to start something with a brand new band he's like but i'll tell you what if i give you these contacts you book your first tour he's like and we'll talk after that and that's basically what happened i booked our first tour we went on tour i want to say it was maybe jazz june was our first like actual tour tour and then halfway through the tour i guess like some people were talking and he called and was like okay i'm your booking agent and that's pretty much how that started and he's oh, like, he just I'm told gonna, you he was your booking yeah agent? Okay. i'm your booking agent and he said and here's what we're gonna do he's like uh me and my friend fred we're uh they had already put out a record from or like a seven inch from a band called garden variety mm-hmm. um and it was on their little label called maltabon hotel oh, i forgot about maltabon hotel it was something him and fred did so they just basically re press the EP that we had under their Maltabon print. And from there, that's how we started the relationship with Triple Crown. Because once that did okay, then Fred was like, well, let's do this thing with Triple Crown. And it was such a cool, you know, verbal kind of deal. There was no, I mean, to, to this day, Fred's the only label I've ever really worked with completely that just, he would call you and say, hey, I owe you guys money. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, that, I didn't know people did that. They don't. <laughs> <laughs> Even the glowing terms we're going to get into about Vagrant, they don't even fucking do that. <laughs> Nobody does. Yeah. So it seems like Ellis had it all like kind of mapped out for you. It yeah. Seems like- I mean, for in a sense, I mean, he, I mean, we all know Ellis is something else. Um, he's he very sees things that people don't see, and he, yeah, that is true. He does see things that people don't see, and he's very, uh, like, this is going to sound so insulting to him, but he's very like nurturing. You know, oh, like, yeah, he's I mean, very like like. Uh, like he genuinely like, and I think more so with you guys than, than even any, I think anybody else, like, it's just like, I mean, a lot of people, t- I mean, me and you've talked about it and a lot of other bands have talked to me about it on mine and it, cause people see how close me and Ellis are. And there is an aspect where, you know, on a darker note, like Ellis was kind of like my dad for a long time. But, you know, when I moved to Connecticut was right when my biological father was under the at the time i was told he killed himself i found out later he was murdered oh my god so i was going and i didn't really know my father i met him when i was 12 so it was already a a hard life and when i met ellis he did take me under his wing he taught me a shit ton about business and you know how to deal with things and uh always talked with me and you know he was always the guy like don't get a fucking neck tattoo (laughs) you know You know, like he was, he was always looking out for me and still does to this day. Yeah. So there is, there 
there's a different connection with me and him. And and I know he knows some of this, but I don't even know if he knows how much I care for him. You know, he's a, he's a great dude, man. Well, let's, let's not let him, let's not, not let him know. So you meet, you start working with Ellis and Ellis hooks you up with Fred. And then basically this whole thing, as, as I've been talking to people and like kind of culminating with the kind of Vagrant America tour years later, is that like Ellis just started putting his bands together to go on tour. And it's at least partially because that's easier for him. You know? Oh, yeah. It's just I mean, like, you know, it's instead of. That's what it seemed like for the most part. I mean, it, I mean, I, if I had to go back and look at all of our tours, I mean, we basically toured with Ellis bands for the most part. Yeah. I mean, we really didn't stray. There was some, uh, some Feta booking bands occasionally. Oh, yeah. Like I forgot about that. Jimmy World, you know, that would be like a, a random one that Ellis didn't book, you know? And, and one, he, was, he hated every other booking agent, too. That's, that's yeah. the other reason that <laughs> probably still does. So, okay, this thing is kind of funny, is it like, because you put out, how many records on Triple Crown before you came to Vagrant? Three, three full links and a, like a, a weird record. <laughs> Let's see. One, two. Oh, I'm sorry. Two full links and a B-side like record thing. It's that uh, been there, smoke that thing. Oh God. Whatever yeah. that thing is. <laughs> been there, smoke that. Yeah. It's funny. Like when I talked to, to Trevor, cause it was just sort of like with face to face, I just kind of always assumed they were part of the Vagrant family, even though they weren't on the label. And I think the same was true for you guys. Cause we were already touring together. Yeah. Like I think 99 is our first tour. And like you didn't sign to Vagrant till what? 2000. Two? 2002 so yeah it was probably like 2000 2001 because but mean, you had probably by that point already played with with uh you know played with dashboard played with saves played with us played oh with yeah the trio yeah. like we had played with all the all those bands um before we signed to vagrant so that i mean that was kind of our you know one of our motivations for going to vagrant was you know you guys were our friends and uh always took us under your wing and we always admired you guys and you guys went there and it seemed like you guys were being successful and it was even more enticing when you guys invited us there with your heroes and villains thing. Now, is that record on heroes and villains? Yeah. Okay. It was a hero that, I mean, that was part of the reason we did it. I mean, cause we want, we felt a little safer being not necessarily guided, but being kind of more under your guys wing than getting lost in some label. Cause, uh, there was, it was a lot of bands saves the day jumped on. They were doing good dashboard jumped on. They were doing, you know, it was, all these bands were jumping on and it was like, well, it seems like the smart thing to do. And uh, the get up kids are doing good. And Matt seems like a good businessman. So let's do this shit. Well, I have my, <laughs> I have my ups and downs. I remember having a conversation with Rich when we were, you guys were coming on and he was, I was like, so they're on heroes and villains. And he's, he's like, no, they're not. And I'm like, yeah, dude, we're there. And he's like, no, I've liked hot yeah. rod for like years. And I'm like, I don't give a shit. They're part of our team. <laughs> You yeah, know, like, I mean that's all the all the first. Pre- I, I don't know if it, I don't think it says it on there. No, anymore. they bought out the label from us eventually. Okay, so yeah, all but the, the all the first stuff says heroes and villains on it. So that's heroes. The entire heroes and villains roster then is us, anniversary, Reggie, New Ams, Hot Rod, Kofac. I think that's it. Yeah. I think that's, that's it too. It's pretty crazy. That would be a fun tour. Whenever that would be fun. Whenever tours happen again, if they ever do. So since this is kind of vagrant specific, that you when you finally did come on board, because I guess you probably what would have signed up. Did you have to get bought out of the deal with Fred or were you done with your contract? No, we just had like a we were pretty much done with Fred. So we we kind of rushed the last record we did with him. I mean, we had the songs, but it was kind of like, let's get this record done so we could get too vagrant kind of thing. Cause we had the deal on the table. Fred was cool with everything. Um, we didn't get bought out. It was just, we were done with our terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, all we had to do was complete a record to be able to sign. And we completed the record. And that is, I think it was the day we completed the records. We signed like a few days later with vagrant. And then if I remember right, did vagrant 
invest in that record a little bit? Like, did they give Fred some, or maybe some resources to help? Like, I maybe you don't quote me on this, but I think they might have helped with some like posters and some press to kind of like with you know with us touring so that it would. I can't remember. I see. I have a memory of that being in the discussion that they were. I, I feel like they did something like some advertising or or some po- tour posters. You know, it wasn't anything big, but I feel like they did something like that. Which record did you make out here with Brawl? That was uh, the. Uh, if it's cool. Is that the second one on? Yeah, on, the Lawnmower record. Okay. I'm sorry. I was just thinking about that because you guys were like, it was literally like you moved to Lawrence, basically. I think that's what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, actually, I'm like second guessing myself now. It's so funny when you get so old and you're like, I don't know. So that's what I remember is that Vagrant kind of invested a little bit in the second Triple Crown record to try and, and then you were, I mean, you were playing the Vagrant America tour in 2001. And your first record on yeah, Vagrant we were come out already pretty much playing "Sorry About Tomorrow" before we ever recorded it. I mean, we once it's kind of like we wrote all those songs, recorded that record, and then it was funny because I recently Dubin posted some video a while back, and it was like a full Hot Rod show at the Metro, and it's before "Sorry About Tomorrow" came out, and we're basically playing "Sorry About Tomorrow" like the whole. That record. would have been probably the Vagrant America shows. That probably what it was. That that wild and crazy week mm-hmm. that I don't I don't remember a whole lot of. That was I don't think anybody remembers anything <laughs> of that <laughs> it was so wild it well it's always so awesome when you do like those shows where you're playing a few nights in a row so there's no loading gear and like you leave all your shit there so everybody always gets a little more out of hand mm-hmm. you don't um, have to drive anywhere yeah and then when we're doing the house of blues and we're all just staying at the house of blues hotel so it's just like okay stumble out of bed and walk on stage but uh that was pretty yeah. wild so Throw throw paintings down the hallway. Oh Jesus! <laughs> Fucking as Rob Dog used to say, he'd be like, "We were pigs last night, pigs." <laughs> yep. <laughs> so like basically throughout this whole time, Vagrant America tour is kind of a specific point I want to talk about. But basically, this whole time, I kind of wonder how many people already thought you were on Vagrant, like because at the time, because it seemed like it was this sort of. I feel like we were. That's what I'm. I'm so confused about too, because I feel like we were already. I guess we were were already on Vagrant officially. Just our record wasn't yeah. out yet. But then, so the Vagrant America tour. I know that you were on. Oh yeah, because the sampler the sampler came out. Oh, that another year on the street. That's thing? what it is. Yeah, Radiation Suit was on it, so they were already promote. That's how they were promoting us. That's what it was. And then we get to the Vagrant America tour, and you guys are like, I remember you were sharing at least the time that when you played in Kansas City, you were sharing a bus with the trio. I think because like you guys had the party bus and the other bus was the yep. the chill bus. I, I remember. Are you saying I was on the party bus? I'm saying you fucking probably ruled it. <laughs> you and Skiba and Jay. Yeah. I just had this memory. So I, I remember I rolled up and I had a my pickup truck that just had the, it was just a two seater. And so a bunch of people jumped in the bed of the truck and we drove down to Arthur Bryant's for barbecue. And I remember I was like, what do you want? And you texted back. And you're like, I think it was te- we were texting then. Somehow I got like, what well, you told me what you wanted. And I basically at Arthur Bryant's, what they do is they give you butcher paper and they put bread in the butcher paper and then they put a shit ton of meat on top of the bread and then just wrap the whole thing up <laughs> like a like a giant burrito. It's amazing. And I remember coming onto your bus and walking into the back lounge and having, you were like, you were like came off of a bong and I ha- handed you this giant meat bomb and you just... <laughs> You couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> you just like, this is so much meat. <laughs> it was just stupid. No, I remember. But I, it was amazing. I remember like seeing you guys on that tour and like everyone was like, 
in good spirits and like getting along and, and having fun. And then when we came up to Chicago, you know, that was just so incredibly wild and, and, oh man, it was just such a, such a strange, but it was also like, there were no like egos involved. I don't feel like, Oh no, we just all had a good time. I mean, I mean, it was, it was so weird back then. I mean, like we were the headliner because I think we were the most popular band at the time, but it wasn't like any kind of like stay out of my dressing room kind of bullshit. Oh no, no, no. You know, no, we were always on top of each other. <laughs> <laughs> we'd always have to, we'd always have to uh, double our writer whenever you guys were around. Go. The Fortnite run of Vagrant America in Chicago is a blur, but there's one story that everyone remembers. Jay helps me break it down. So here, I'm, I'll tell the story and you tell me if I'm getting anything wrong. So sure. when we're at Vagrant America in Chicago, I don't know if we got free tickets to, or Egan, probably Vagrant bought tickets to a Cubs game. And I remember he did. it was you, me, Skiba, Rich, Ellis, probably Jackson. I'm sure there were other people there. Actually, I was the only guy from Hot Rod there because everybody okay. else flew home. Oh, that's right. Because you guys only played like one or two nights and then bounced or something like that. I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, two nights, so I think. we're day drinking, even though we have a show that night. And it just keeps going this thing about like, Jay just starts going, I could streak the field. And we're just like, no, nah, Jay, whatever. And you're like, no, I could do it. I could totally do it. And Egan goes, I'll give you $500 if you streak the field. And you're like, ah, I don't know. And it gets up to like, in my mind, it's like only 2,500 bucks. You think it was five grand? No, no. You're, it, I believe it was bail plus. Oh, that's right. It was yeah. bail. It was bail plus like 500 bucks. Yeah. And <laughs> the the voice of reason, the person who said you can't do that was Matt Skiba, who's arguably one of the, and he, it, and it was just because he's a Chicago native. And he's like, you won't get thrown in jail. You'll get beaten to death. By when Matt Cubs. Skiba tells you not to streak at the Cubs game, you don't you streak listen. at the Cubs game. That's <laughs> it. You know, if, if Matt's the voice of reason, Matt, who I've blown, you know, fireballs, you know, 15 feet into the air and burn the roof of my mouth with. And, uh, you know, we've had a lot of good times. If when he tells you not to do something, you just, yeah, you if know, he thinks it's, do it, if, he, so. if he thinks it's too dangerous an idea, then you know, it's definitely like it, it's it sounds like you were already kind of part of the family before you even yeah, put a record I mean, like, out. Yeah, cuz like you guys, I mean we we were already we already were friends with Saves the Day. We were already friends with Dashboard. I mean, we did, you know, van tours and festivals with Saves the Day and we, you know, our first we took Dashboard on his first couple of tours. So we were already friends with him when it was just him and an acoustic guitar, you know. The fan res- we need to talk about the fan response for Sorry About Tomorrow. We started touring in 99 together and then Sorry About Tomorrow came out. We started touring in 99 together, and then Sorry About Tomorrow came out in 2002. So in that time, you guys were like writing all these songs and playing all these songs live, and then you were saying that you basically signed a Vagrant contract the day after you turned in the last Triple Crown record. What was the process like writing the record, and then I don't even know where you recorded it and with who? Um, so sorry about tomorrow. We, uh, basically as soon as we had some time off, I remember we, um, uh, we were living in Connecticut at the time and we had this, uh, that same place where my mother had that, uh, my mother-in-law had that, that room downstairs. No one was down there like living there at the time. So I think I like rented it out for like a month or something like that. So we set the whole band up down there, set up some recording gear and literally just got in a room. I think I had maybe a couple of songs written um, at the time, but we just literally worked every day until we had Sorry About Tomorrow written. And we were going to, we, we ended up going to uh, College Park, Maryland to make the record with uh, Brian McTurney. Oh, that's right. I did know that. Yeah. 
So he was an old friend of Porman's. They like went to school together. So they had known each other for years and worked on a bunch of records together and done things. Um, so Porman really wanted to go do it with him. And it was the first record we ever did with a click track, which Porman had never done that. So he really <laughs> wanted to do it with Brian and, you know, somebody he trusted and somebody that could help him with it. Um, so that's, that's where we did that record. Was he already doing things? He got to be a pretty big producer in the scene. Yeah, he had already done, like at the time, I want to say he had already done like Hot Water, Saves the Day. It was there was a recover record that I love. God, I mean, it's that record sounds so good. But he one of the best sounding records ever, dude. It really it's kind of why I wanted to go there. It's like I heard that I was like, fuck yeah, I'll go record this guy. Mm-hmm. Like we don't have anything that sounds like this. It, it's fucking insane. Like I still listen to that EP to this day. And when I track drums, that's like my go to. Like I go listen to that record to make sure my drums sound like that. How long did you take to record at that time? I want to say it was a, like a full month. It was it was yeah, but we he. He had a garage out back that just had this really nice studio. We made the record there. He taught us a lot. If you're listening to this podcast, it's safe to say that you've heard or owned a record that Brian McTernan has produced. Here's an abbreviated list. Hot Rod Circuit, Hot Water Music, Thrice, Senses Fail, Texas is the Reason, The Promise Ring, Cave In, Converge, J. June, Piebald, The Movie Life, Snapcase, Bane, The Bled, Monine. And on and on till the break of dawn. Is the first record you did for Vagrant the Hot Rod record? Yeah. How'd you hook up with those guys? So Poorman's one of my oldest friends. I think that I, I played in a band called Ashes and we play, I think I'm, we played a show that Jamie Josta book, <laughs> <Avery> book, <laughs> yes. booked for us when I was like, I think I was like 15 or 16 and Mike Poorman was at the show and we became friends. And then when we both ended up in Boston, I recorded, he was in a band called Shyness Clinic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We and played I with record, and I and I recorded them, and we we just were very close friends. So I think my recollection of the hot rod thing was they were staying they would stay with us from time to time when they would be on tour um and they one weekend we just recorded a song for fun it was like radiation suit i think it was called and um it came out awesome and i think vagrant was like oh you know you guys maybe just do this with brian well because you you had a already had quite the pedigree at that point right yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, that was like right, I, that was 2001. And that was definitely like, like a lot of the bands that I was working with at that time were starting to do really well. Interestingly, like, like Hot Water Music was one of the first bands that was, um, like, wasn't a band that I, I don't want to say that I developed, but almost every, all the bands I was working with were bands that, like, I did their demo and then I did their seven inch and then I did their full length kind of thing. And Hot Water was like the first, like, hey, we got signed to Epitaph and we have a budget. Do you want to do this record? They were kind of outside of the the bubble, um, even though I knew them. And I think same thing with, that was right around that same time with Hot Rod where people were like, oh, we could do this with Brian. I mean, I think I was, I mean, I think I was only like 21 or 22, 22 years old then. Yeah, you've got, you've got, so tell me about making the the Hot Rod Circuit record. So the, that was a real crazy record because um, we we did pre-production and then the first day of tracking was September 11th, 2001. Oh, wow. So like, I remember that at the time my studio was in Beltsville, Maryland, and the I had built like a building behind the house and that's where the studio was and the bands lived in the basement. And I just remember coming down and like turning the news on and seeing the second plane hit the 
the, the towers and being like, holy fucking shit. I went down and like got Porman up and we were like watching TV in shock. And I mean, we, you have to keep in mind, we're like 10 miles from the Pentagon. Oh, wow. So it was a crazy, crazy day. And then I, my recollection is that we did not start tracking that day. Like we just kind of like watched the news and did that kind of shit. You know, just like yeah. we're, we're in shock and then ended up starting to track the record the next day. That's crazy. Like, could you hear the crash? No, 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 we, we didn't hear the crash. Um, and then I believe that we like tried to drive by the Pentagon to see if we could see anything and you just couldn't see it. Couldn't see anything. It was a pretty crazy thing. The other crazy thing that happened when we were making that record was like a tornado like came up my street. <laughs> so like I I remember we heard like be- like crashing and a bunch of stuff and like we walked outside and it was one of those weird things where it was like totally dry outside the door of the studio and pouring rain like 30 feet away from us and this tornado just blew up the street knocking trees down. I think we lost power for like 5 days or something <laughs> in the middle of in the middle of making the record. Yeah. Are tornadoes was- common in your area? No, not at all. I would say you're more like, you're more in like hurricane territory. It was like a destruction. My whole street was just trees everywhere. And I think someone got died. Like someone got like very close. I was really close to the University of Maryland and someone got like picked up by the hurt the tornado and like died. Like it was Oh shows. god. Like she full on Wizard of Oz style. Full on Wizard of Oz. <laughs> it's <laughs> So did you guys keep recording on a generator or did you just stop for five days? No, 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 no. We just stopped. We just stopped and like hung out. I can't remember how long it was, but it was a pretty decent amount of time that we didn't have power and and then got back after it. <laughs> so the things I remember about that record, I love that band and I loved, I think Casey and I had a lot of tension on that record because I... He's You're not a fan a, of the pedal steel? No, it's not, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't that. He's such an awesome player. And I kind of felt like the prior record, he was not like pushing himself far enough. Like he had this like, I don't want to say gimmick that he did, but a thing he did that like wasn't always musical. And I felt like he could be catering like his parts more to like everything else that was going around and not just so much of the like always. And I think that, you know, that I think that was like, I just remember him being very frustrated with me. (laughs) That's interesting. I don't think a lot of people would have, would have attempted that. It's kind of almost like a, yeah, do that thing and jump around a lot. Like you always do. That's what people like, you know, and you're, (laughs) and you're saying that you like, you know, I know you can do better than that. Like that thing is fine that you're doing and people like it, but yeah, yeah, you've got more in you. That was like what I wanted to get from him. And, and, um, he got there. I mean, I think he played his parts ended up being really like awesome on that record, but, but you think that he was frustrated with me at times. (laughs) (laughs) Great. You you pissed off the nicest guy in the band. Uh Oh my gosh. (laughs) Uh, did you, was there any, uh, input from, label people at all? I mean, nope. I did not have any correspondence with the label at all until... Until you needed to get paid? (laughs) (laughs) Until I needed to get paid. No, I can't can't remember that part of it, but I don't think I had any interaction myself with Vagrant at all on that that record. I I would go on to with future records that I would do for them. Is that different than like dealing with drive-through or Jade Tree or Epitaph or even like the majors? that you've like yes totally like you know in contrast when i did the first hot water music record i did 
Greg Gerwitz came out for a week oh, to, wow. be, to be there. And then that was real stressful being like a 21 year old kid. <laughs> Brent, yeah. Brent, who grew, Brent who Gerwitz probably grew up on bad religion and, right, you know, with Brett Gerwitz sitting in the back of the room being like, yeah, this is cool. In my little like shit box garage in Beltsville. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And then the, like the J tree people were like in Delaware. And so they were always around a lot. And and we, we had grown up together. So, I mean, I think that Vagrant, I expected them to be super hands-on and they, they weren't that hands-on with that record. But I remember them being stoked. I mean, I think that Hot Rod, Hot Rod record's very cool. Yeah, it's, it's a great record. Yeah, I think it's their that, most popular record too, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it's got a lot of great songs, and and then I think, and then one thing we never finished. Do you know they had that um, "Breathe In, Exhale" song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I swear to God, that song could have been like a hit, and we actually re-recorded it and never finished it. Oh, really? I got the tape sitting in the room next to me. <laughs> this whole era is filled with people who have songs that are like, "Why didn't that end up on the radio?" And it's just like, well, because yeah. radio didn't play shit like that at the time. Yeah, you know? yeah. But I I loved that song, and I felt like you would see it live and it was just so just felt like a massive song and then it didn't on the record before it didn't come across that way so we did track everything i think we didn't finish the vocals um for that was that just like a artistic decision like they didn't oh, want to I like think it was just like time you know it was like we you know we had the 9-11 and then a tornado and <laughs> like, you know, that, that, what, that what else could go wrong <laughs> mcturnan is a teetotaler jackson is well not when we first got there with McTurnan, he's very like, uh, and I know he did this. I've heard stories with like hot water and things like that, you know, because they're big drinkers and smokers and they, you know, it's kind of their thing to have the gruffy voice. The very first band the Get Up Kids ever toured with was Braid. Like the anniversary, they taught us how to celebrate the absurdity of this weird job that we all have. We probably have played more shows with Braid than any other band, including our first trip to Europe. When they broke up, three of the members decided to start fresh with Hey Mercedes, and we wanted very badly for them to be part of the Heroes and Villains family. I spoke to singer and guitarist Bob Nana about the Braid to Hey Mercedes transition. Why did you start Hey Mercedes as opposed to like if Roach didn't want to be in Braid anymore, you just kept going as Braid? I think we had we just had so much experience and time spent together, not only in a band, but as friends. And I feel as though through all the recordings we did and all the touring we did, his presence in Braid was essential for it to be still braid. And if we were to start a new band, it would I think it would be would be odd to have a new second voice singing some songs. It just it, it would seem a little weird to me because with with Hey Mercedes, it was basically just me singing. But with Braid, you know, Chris and I were pretty uh, adamant about just splitting up splitting up the songs as we were comfortable with, but making it a point not to sort of hog the mic literally. And Braid broke up because we were sort of all sick of each other, but also Chris wanted to start a new band uh-huh. and, and do a different, go in a different direction. And yet Todd and Damon and I were still sort of gung-ho about the direction we were in. And so that's why Hey Mercedes began and Braid broke up. Was there like frustration amongst the three of you that you couldn't continue under that name or 
did was it kind of like fresh start no, sort of No it was it was fresh start for sure there was no there wasn't really any frustration in fact i think if there was frustration it was because we were frustrated that braid wasn't we didn't feel at the time that braid was really even going anywhere we had just had some rough touring patches and as much as we maybe won't admit it we were seeing you know our friends band like you're like get up kids and promise ring like doing all this cool stuff and we just i don't know we felt like it's probably best to start something new because we felt like I don't know things weren't falling in line for us. Why do you think? Why do you think that is? Because like I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's because we didn't have any. It, I mean, it's possible. Be, you know, we were on polyvinyl at the time, and polyvinyl at the time was a pretty small operation. Mm-hmm. So we weren't do. We didn't do any videos for Frame and Canvas. We didn't do any videos. Period. And so there was a bit of a lack of push in that sense. And then there, you know, there may have been a bit of just a tiny bit of inaccessibility. I mean, we weren't, you know, we, we got a little jagged sometimes mu- musically. That what do you, what do you mean by that? Wasn't, wasn't people's real cup of tea. I mean, I don't know. Like, nobody wants to f- count when they have to, like, do their sing-along part. I don't know. I, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's something that I don't... We might have been frustrated at the time, but we weren't, like, pissed off, really. We were just like, well, let's just start a new band. And, but you know, the funny thing is when we started Hey Mercedes, we didn't make a real conscious effort to smooth anything out at least for the first album. Yeah, I was I was going to say I don't I don't yeah. I don't think of Hey Mercedes is all of a sudden like a power pop band or something like No, agreed. I mean, it was just like, well, this is what's what's going to happen. You know, we sit I sit down and you sit down and write what you think is something else and people are like, "No, that sounds exactly like something you would write." And you're like, "Oh shit." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, I guess. I I mean, do you think that was confusing to people then? That Like, it's like, why did you just, you know, like, I, I understand that kind yeah. of like a weird marriage, you know, and like, it, it yeah. just wasn't the, wasn't the same. But like, I assume because it's like, I, I don't know, just it's interesting. But so when you when you guys started Hey Mercedes, mm-hmm. were, were, was Vagrant already on the table at that point? No. Okay. No, in fact, we did the first EP with Polyvinyl. Oh, that's right. I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah, and it was, Vagrant didn't really become an option until you guys basically stepped in, and it was you and I believe Kevin there, mm-hmm. um, who somehow maybe got in touch with Damon or something, because at that point, you you guys had signed, and you were, you know, doing this Heroes and Villains sort of sub-label, and, you know, bringing, like, Kofax on, and Anniversary and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm misspeaking or, or like mis, misremembering some certain things, but I think you, it was mostly you guys that said, hey, you know, things are pretty good here on Vagrant. They're, you know, come out and play a show, you know, in LA. Not like you were there, but I mean, like, go play a show in LA, meet the people, hang out with them and see what, what happens. And that's what we did. I know for me, like I tried to be pretty involved early on with like the anniversary stuff. And I know Rob, Robbie was. Yeah. But I think by the time it was even when Kofax had come out, by the time you guys, it was just, I was sort of like, no, I trust Vagrant to just take care of you. <laughs> you know, like yeah. you just, just come, just come in. And, uh, yeah. but yeah, I, I don't even, I think, I assume I, cause I assume I had heard that EP, the polyvinyl EP beforehand, but it, it was all, it was more like what we were kind of trying to do with the heroes and villains thing is just like, we want to put out our friends bands yeah. that are good. 
you know, like, yeah. and, and it so, doesn't hurt. It's a, it obviously doesn't hurt. Probably didn't hurt for Vagrant to hear that. Oh, and by the way, yeah, these, these bands are immediately going to go out and and tour, <laughs> like nonstop. Like these uh-huh. these are work hardworking bands. Yeah. Well, and it's not like it's not like you're a, a baby band with no re- name recognition either. You know, That's like true. it's just your three fourths of Braid are starting a new band, and it's in the same. It's two guitars, drums, bass, and vocals. It's not like you started a you right. know an, an instrumental electronic yeah. thing. You know, yeah. So. So tell me like and then Kevin kind of took was your like kind of champion there more than anybody yeah I believe so and I, I tried to stay I didn't I stayed out of it a little bit and I think it was more Damon and Todd maybe to an extent that I think it might have been Damon actually because he was at first the person who sort of took charge of kind of the management side mm-hmm. of Hey Mercedes stuff so I think it was mostly through him and again which, through through Kevin and then through you guys which makes sense because I mean you know Damon's in management no. <laughs> yeah, he is. He loves a good spreadsheet. <laughs> I, I appreciate a good spreadsheet in my day. Yeah, there's it's I don't I don't like a spreadsheet when I I'm doing it for five people and I'm the only one who's doing it. Then it gets kind of frustrating. But you got it. Yeah, yeah, of course, right. Um but so okay, so when does so this is like 2001, right? The first Yeah. Record comes out. When did the EP come out? Yeah, that came out. It came we, out we released, yeah, we released the EP the day we played our first show. Wow. Yeah, it was just Polyvinyl was ready to go, and we had I think some demos we sent, and so we recorded that EP and, and released it that that day. Were uh, was Polyvinyl bummed that you were like leaving? I think so. Think? I think really? so. I don't know that for a fact, but I, I think they were. You never talked to Matt about it or anything? Um, no. Okay. No, I mean, but but they're not. The, you know, they're not the type of label that holds grudges and stuff. I mean, when we yeah. were we were just deeply friends with Matt and Darcy since the very beginning. I mean, Matt actually set up the very first Braid show in 1993. So like, Jesus, we've known wow. him. We've known him forever. So I mean, you know, they he he was probably like, yeah, I mean, go for it. I mean, if they have the engine to push you guys out, go for it. I think they were nothing but supportive. But probably a little bummed, I'd assume, but I, I don't know. I, I really like, I mean, because we work with them now. Yeah, come full circle, hasn't it? <laughs> Matt's just the kindest person. He, oh, I know. So you go out and you, you play, in a, like you, I mean, you didn't go out and like do like a showcase. You just had like a regular show in LA, right? Like, yeah, yeah. It wasn't like a, some, it wasn't a show. It was more just like we flew out and played some shows and just made sure that there were vagrant people at the shows. I think it was like Troubadour. And I think there may be even three or four shows we did. And we went to Prices Right at that, on that trip. Really? Yeah. With, well, with, with Kevin Knight. Kevin Knight took us to Prices Right. You remember Kevin Knight? He ran Glue Factory. The oh, Glue yeah. Glue Factory, and then yeah, yeah, Ol- yeah. worked with Olio. Yeah. Okay. He, he took us, I think we might have stayed with him on that trip. And yeah, he took all of us to prices right which was really was this fun still bob barker or was this it was bob barker oh yep. wow that's amazing i still have my uh, name tag which says robert you had to put what was on your license so mine says robert does that count as a braid show did you put that in your, no, in your no. book okay no well or maybe, a hey mercedes show rather yeah no no we didn't get called up either <laughs> I, and honestly i was happy about it because i was in the back being like oh my god they better not call my name I was so nervous. So when, where did you record the first record? At Pachyderm. So have you ever been to Pachyderm? I have. Is it in Wisconsin? Close. Yeah. It's in um, Minnesota. It's Cannon Falls, Minnesota. 
It's like an hour outside of Minneapolis, south maybe. I'm not exactly sure, but I'm pretty sure that's right. But yeah, Pachyderm, I believe that might have been where from here to Infirmary, the Alkaline Trio record was recorded. But I know they recorded some stuff there. And I believe parts of In Utero might have been. It's all of In Utero. Uh, yeah, maybe you've heard of it. Little record by a band from Seattle, that guy from the Foo Fighters used to play in. All of a new Okay, great. Yeah, I mean, so we just had, it was recommended to us as a great place. And it was get like a literal sort of getaway cabin in the middle of nowhere. And it was amazing. Like we stayed there because Jay Robbins did the record. We stayed there for, I believe, three weeks, two or three weeks. And there was a big house and everyone had their own bedroom. There was a pool in the house in the basement with a diving board. There was like a sauna Whoa. there. There was a, you know, a nice deck. And then the studio was in a separate building, you know, sort of like a nice little hike, you know, not a hike, but you know, whatever, just this down this path. And then there was like a separate building that was the studio, this just beautiful studio. It was like idyllic. There was like a creek by it. And luckily we took some good video from the recording process that's on YouTube. So you could check it out. That sounds awesome. That sounds like super... It was Super so chill. cool to just be in, you know, just a completely encompassed in the prod, the work of doing the record. There was nothing there to distract you. The only shit that was there to distract you was like self-help stuff. <laughs> like, oh, you want to go, you know, take a swim or something or go walk by the by the creek or whatever. Like it was insane. And, you know, Damon is probably the, <laughs> the one who got the most out of it because, you know, he does the drums and he's done. Like, what does yeah. he have to do for two weeks? Just swim. <laughs> it was great. That's amazing. I, yeah, that's, that's, oh, that sounds really, really awesome. I know. We mixed it's just it like, and it's, it's smart, but yeah. Sorry. It, no, it's just, it's, it's cool to think that like, you know, you're, cause you, you think you hear about like recording stories like that, where you're like, oh, we got, we went into the woods for three weeks or a month or whatever. And it's always some like insane major label budget kind of yeah. band or something like that. And you were still on an indie label. Oh yeah. You know? And it was still like, it wasn't like a seven record 360 deal no. that you had to sign to, to get to just to have that. Oh, totally. That little bit of freedom to be able to like, just, you know, create stuff. That's something that's been coming up in a lot of these interviews is that like Caraba really put it. He was just like, you know, they just gave him, they let him go to the studio in Florida and, and do, his thing and he had like yeah. nine days you know and it was just like they just believed the label just kind of believed they didn't like because like did they like did anyone from vagrant like come out or like no. want to hear stuff as it was co coming along or anything like that they definitely didn't come out to um, minnesota um we might have sent some things over but it i don't remember it being i think we sent just the rough mixes when it was done. And then, like I said, we mixed it in Madison at Smart. But yeah, no, for Loose's Control, for the second album, um, they did come out. But uh, yeah, no, they weren't, They, you know, that's sort it's of switched. the way Chris de described it is sort of it. They just sort of believed in us and let us do it. And plus, they probably believed in Jay Robbins, too. I mean, mm -hmm. doing it with Jay. And they, they heard the demos, of course. But yeah, just working with Jay in that environment was amazing. We were just so fortunate to be able to do it. So... That for the the for the record comes out in two thousand one, and then are you just on the road at that point? Yeah. Well, if you recall, what happened was in two thousand one, um, there was some sort of lawsuit. Oh right, we keep coming a, up against this. Yes. Yeah, there was a legal issue that had to do with, I believe, some sort of distribution deal. 
that yeah. Vagrant might have had with TVT or something like that. I don't know. Again, these are things that I let other people worry about because what, mm-hmm. what good is it going to be for me to, you know, you know, play like LA Law in my head or something? Like, I, I know nothing about this or at least the most, the important stuff about it. But what it did was it pushed back our, our album release. I think Rich explained that he was literally in court uh-huh. and the judge said, well, what's the next release you have? And it was, hey, Mercedes. And the judge is like, well, that's not going to come out now. Or it's going to be, we're, we're, that can't come out the day you wanted it to come out. Yet, we had all, we had it all, all the tours booked and stuff like that. So it was, you know, it wasn't perfect but that was the situation. Uh, we, we had all the booking and set, but yeah. So were you pissed about that? Like, were a you... A little bit, a little bit, because we had such great shows lined up. We had a tour with Jets to Brazil. I, I might be getting my dates wrong, but I think the, the record should have been out by that. We had a tour with Jets to Brazil. We had the Vagrant America tour, and then we had a tour with Jimmy Eat World. Um, that's... That sounds like pretty good setup for a oh my god, it was a band, in the, a band in the scene. I know. Well, and then for the Jimmy World tour, that went. That was during nine eleven. Like that was in oh. the middle of the tour, so that sort of derailed things too. But um, did that cancel the tour? No, it canceled. Obviously, that night, that show, which was in that show, that night was in uh, Detroit. Which is funny. My ex wife still has her ticket stub. She, but for that show, that didn't happen. That was before I knew her. Yeah, that show was canceled. The next show, we had a day off. We didn't have a show that the, on the twelfth, but the thirteenth, we had a show at First Avenue in Minneapolis. That that happened. Okay. And then the, the next show was at Metro, and then that was the last show of the tour. Was that show like the, the show on the thirteenth? Was it like attendance it was really weird? weird? Yeah. No, it was it was full. I mean, been, people might have been people sold came out. out. Yeah, everyone knows. But it was sort just of a like, weird vibe. Oh, it was it was really weird. <laughs> and I think Jimmy World even had like a signing thing happening because Bleed American had just come out, right? Um, so I I just remember it just being a really weird vibe. But it was cool. Like you know, I remember we were all happy that it was still happening, and we were happy to like be able to hang out and like enjoy music <laughs> because we were just so. Everyone was just so freaked out. Yeah, but I imagine you had this sort of like, is this okay? Is it okay oh, for us 100%. to like, like, so when did the record finally come out? I think it came out in October. So after everything was done? <laughs> it was after everything was done. So then what was the plan after that? Okay, keep touring. And so we did a tour soon after that with just Saves the Day. I think it was Saves the Day and Thursday was pretty soon right after that. Yeah, I'm looking right now at the at our show list. And yeah, it looks like uh, we did a tour with New End Original in October and then looks like November through basically the end of the year was saves the day on Thursday. What was the response? Cuz like that those that's like the bigger the bigger bands at kind of the height of that that moment in the scene. Yeah. Well, what's funny is uh, I the response at those shows I recall being warm and really cool and fun and they were big shows and we weren't like people weren't like pissed that they had to watch us before they got to see Saves the Day on Thursday. And even Thursday was sort of in that that um, beginning-ish stage of them being becoming pretty big at that point too. But so like what was what was your guys' like kind of feeling attitude at the time? Like did you feel like you were being well received and well taken care of by the label? Yeah. Did you feel like you were supported? We did. We did. Um in in general, we were very happy with the tours that we did. And that first Vagrant America tour was the first time we had ever even been on, I had ever been on a bus, a tour bus. That was just like, 
nuts. I mean, because, you know, you and I were so used to doing, you know, the van tour and sleeping on people's floors and, mm-hmm. you know, where we, whatever. And, and so it was a kind of a shock, but in a way, a shock, but we were all old enough, I think, to understand how fortunate we were and also take advantage of the fact that, oh, I can, I don't need, this doesn't have to be a party. I literally have a bunk over there. I can go to sleep. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Or something like that. So, you know, we maybe took a little bit of a, a of advantage of that. But yeah, we were feeling really good. I know that, you know, um, Mark from Hey Mercedes at the time wasn't having the best feeling about Vagrant. He was friends with like the Rocket guys and they were sort of feeling weird about it. And I think they're because of the label having this legal issue with the um, distributor. And then at some point, Interscope came into the picture, I think. And so I think Mark just was distrustful or at least had just some sort of like apprehension about being on such a big label and what went on behind the closed doors of it. Um, But as far as all three of us, we were just on this rocket and wanted to keep on it. Yeah, It's interesting, this this period of this lawsuit has come up a couple of times now and it it all seems to be kind of like the bands that got kind of held back because of it seem to be kind of forgiving about it and then <laughs> at least so far the ones that we've talked to and then when we talked to Egan he kind of was just like he he gave us all the details about it but it was kind of like I think if if like we were in a writing we were in a, the writing phase and recording phase yeah. when, like, so we weren't touring, touring at all. Yeah. But I, I honestly, like, that's the kind of thing where if, if that had happened to us, like where it was like, your shit's going to get pushed back for six months and you're going to have to go on your headlining tour with no yeah. record out. That's the kind of shit that would make me want to leave. You know what yeah. I mean? But, um, but luckily that, that isn't how it happened. But I, I totally understand what you mean. The first time that, you know, we were on a bus, it was just like, oh, I can just, I can just yeah. get away from everybody. I can go in my <laughs> little, what at the time seemed like a very roomy coffin, you oh, know? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was awesome. I, I remember like going to that first truck stop or whatever and being like, all right, now I need to get a little light for in there. Maybe a little uh-huh. pouch where I can put my book or whatever, or my, I don't know if there was a phone or whatever, but you know, like I was like, this is going to be my home. I'm psyched about my little my little bunk. I think it's something it's like, cause like, yeah, we learned how to tour from, from you guys, you know, and it's just like that, that van life, that, that Taco Bell life, yeah. you know, that, that, uh, asking people from the, the microphone, if they have anywhere yeah, for us to crash. To stay, yeah. yeah. It's kind of a, a wild way to live. You get a, some beer at the show and then you leave and you're like, well, you, we need to take this beer. Mm-hmm. You can't just leave this beer here. And so it just sits clanking around in the back of the van, just uh-huh. like, you know, whatever. Well, <laughs> like, or like you hit you hit, hit a stoplight and then all of a sudden this beer can just rolls up to the front. Yeah, and you're just like. Well, I mean, but even that even that van life is better than what we had that first time in Europe when we were all in that yeah. one van, like crammed in on top of each other. Yeah, the van and the little station wagon. We had a sprinter with the gear in it, and then we had a little like sedan, and like we had two bands, two merch guys, the driver, and at one point Rob Dog and Dirk. Like it, we, we were, it was like. It was it was the nightmare. We were crammed we were in a, smashed. for six weeks, and then and it used to be like the cov- the most coveted seat was shotgun <laughs> in the sedan. And Chris Broach from Braid would get up at like five in the morning and yell shotgun, and then we 
he would always take it. I was so mad well, at him. What he would do sometimes is set an alarm and then go out and sleep in the <laughs> shotgun. Like he'd get up at like whatever five and be like, just get up and then go go in shotgun and sleep there. So like you'd get, there wasn't even any calling it because he was already sitting in it asleep. Sneaky motherfucker. So, okay. So tour, tour, tour 2001. Sounds like things yeah. are going good other than that, that hiccup, except Mark was feeling like a little, a little hesitant. And I think, right. Rightfully so, because yeah. that is that is kind of a shady. But it's interesting to think of like where he's coming from and where you're coming from. The three of you guys have all put in your your time. I don't know what Mark's touring background really is. Yeah, I mean, before that, he was in Alligator Gun, Span Alligator okay. Gun. But then he did a lot was of touring. Was that with Scott? Was Scott yeah, Sheenbeck in that band? Scott was in it. Damon was in it for a little bit too. I'm not sure if they were all in it at the same time. It had a kind of a revolving cast. Okay. But he also did a bunch of tour. He guitar tech for Jets Brazil. He did a lot, or for Promise Ring as well. Like he did a lot of, he actually did a lot of touring. So what, what happens at that point? So you're getting into like around... In, into 2002. Mm-hmm. And so what, when do you decide to start making the next record? Well, what happened was in, yeah, it was in 2000, late 2001 or 2002, we got asked to go to Japan and Mark sort of put his foot down and made his little stake in the ground and said, this is a bad idea. We can't, we shouldn't go. I don't want to go. I, he just thought it was a bad idea for all of the reasons. He thought it was a waste of money, waste of time, just whatever. And, and part of this this show or this tour, we were going to be playing this festival. It was something we really wanted to do. And so we were like, you know, it's like braid all over again. We had this meeting where it was Bob, um, I'm seeing my name Bob here. So I said, Bob, <laughs> it was, you know, me and Damon and Todd were just like, well, you know, we want to go to Japan. We, he doesn't want to go. Maybe we should split ways. And we had already, you know, at that point we had our our arguments and stuff. So that's what happens. Um, And then we had our friend, Sean um, O'Brien fill in and we're just like, Hey, do you want to play a few shows for Hey Mercedes? We have a book. We have this, we have like three shows booked around Chicago and Japan. (laughs) Do you want to go get a passport? It sounds like a horrible tour. Yeah. So it was fun. That was really fun. The tour or that that um, show that we did in Japan that was a um, festival. It was wild. It was with um, Album Leaf and I think Tristeza as well. But then oh, cool. a, a bunch of um, Japanese bands. But our set time, I believe, was like 2 a.m. And we were not the headliner. Like oh literally, the, when the headliner was done... And I remember the headliner, they were called 5471, I think. They were really amazing. But when Sean, by the time that happened, the rest of the band had gone back to the hotel. But Sean, the other guitar player, and I stayed. And we, when we left the, the venue, it was, it was morning. It was light out. It was wild. So it was just like an all-night concert? Yeah. It was really, really That's cool. That's crazy. And so then we, I don't think Sean ever was going to be the permanent member of the band. We had our friend um, Mike Schumacher who was in a band called Shieldbound and had done some touring and stuff. I think he was, you know, friends with Damon. Um, he came in to be the other guitar player of Hey Mercedes, and that's when we started working on the second record. Okay. And so was Mark just out at that? Like, yeah. it was just, okay. Well, it yeah. doesn't sound like you were on the same page. <laughs> you no, know? we weren't. I mean, you know, I'm looking at our dates. It's after that, that um, the string of shows that we did with Sean. Actually, another show that we did with Sean was was the um, a Michigan Fest that I know there's a 
DVD that looks like Coalesce played that and Chick 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 and Isis and stuff. And Hot Snakes, I think, played that. Anyway, I remember that being cool. But And then it looks like uh, in July of that year, we went on a long tour with Piebald. And okay. Koufax. And Koufax was on that tour. And you probably have seen the poster for that tour. It's like the Mexican wrestling. Oh, okay. Do you like know what a, I'm talking about? Yeah, with the hats. I, it's a, and the poster is in, it was in a, like Friday Night Lights or something. Like it, it showed up in a few places and Joby did it. This, yeah, this is, this is the time when, uh, like for some reason, TV shows started getting a requesting like vagrant posters. Like if they ever <laughs> wanted to decorate like a teenager's, like a teenager's bedroom yeah. or something like that. So the funniest one for me, like it's, it's like all through like the early 2000s is that my, fir- my first solo record, which has a picture of my then four-year-old daughter on the cover, uh-huh. showed up in a bathroom scene in that show Party Down. Oh, wow. And I was just like, that's a four-year-old poster. Yeah. I still get those from time to time. People are like, they've got a Get Up Kids poster in this kid's bedroom yeah. on this show. There was yeah, a they got the Vegas poster on the wall in Shameless. In a, in oh, really? characters of shameless yeah that's kind of sweet that it's chicago you know yeah i, do, I haven't watched the show so but it's pretty people have it's pretty good screenshots of it yeah oh no i people like it but what's funny about that piebald tour is we we did it on a bus and we were just like we we were like yeah let's live that bus life uh-huh. for uh hammer Save. yeah were you sharing it with anybody or was it just you guys no it was just us in, so in retrospect a terrible idea just a pro- waste of money <laughs> Well, you got to find that balance, you know, like it's like, exactly. you, you know, you, you can't sleep on floors your whole life and expect to want to keep doing it, you That's know? That's true. Yeah. So when did you start working on Loses Control? Um, In 2003, I believe. Yeah. Because here we are. We played um, we played in Cambridge because we recorded Loses Control in Cambridge with um, Paul Kolderi and Sean Slade, who we were really excited to be working with them. They did The Bends or worked on Radiohead The Bends and a bunch of other really amazing classic, classic records. Um, they might have done one of the whole records. Yeah, they just lived through this. Okay. Um, but so we went to Boston or Cambridge and rented like an apartment. This is before. Or Airbnbs were a thing. Um, and so we had this apartment for like two weeks or two and a half weeks or something like that. And then every day we would just get up and then go to the studio, which was called Camp Street um, in Cambridge. And it was, you know, upstairs at a, in a building. It was small and cramped. So it was not like Pachyderm at all. <laughs> it's the opposite. I know. In the middle of a city. Also, I didn't do any personal pre-production for Loses Control. Normally when I'm working on a record, and I did this with every Braid record, and I did it with Every Night Fireworks for Hey Mercedes, is I will go, I will do deep, deep dives for every song and come up with just ideas for production things, for cool things here, for harmonies there, for blah, blah, blah. And to the point when I, when I got to Packenham for uh, Every Night Fireworks, I presented this to Jay Robbins. He was like, well, you just produced the record. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, I <laughs> I just did whatever. This is just ideas, you know, would go over this. Um, I decided for Loses Control not to do any of that because I thought, well, these guys are pros. I mean, everybody at that point was professional, but I mean, like they have like such a great resume and track record of working on these records. So I'll just let them do their thing. And I, they didn't do the thing. And I, I don't know if that was their 
they just don't do that and let it just sort of ride and, and play, you know, see what comes to them. But it was a weird way for me to work because when I realized that they didn't have anything, I really scrambled and like, was like, shit, I need to get all of these things down now. And I haven't done any of this. Elaborate on that. Like explain yeah. to me what you mean. Cause usually, usually when I, for me, when I think of pre-production on my end, it's more about songwriting and arranging. And yeah. cause I'm not, I'm not an odd, like I'm not a big audio guy. And I tend to kind of like leave that to people who are, and then yeah. come up with like, Hey, wouldn't it be cool if there was an organ here, like in the moment, like when we're, when we're there, but you actually would go like kind of like come yeah. up with those ideas far in advance. Yeah. And that isn't how those guys worked at all. Or is it just, they didn't do it for you? I don't know. Okay. Yeah. In terms of what I was, you know, I'm also not uh, as audio, you know, like, um, Savvy. I'm, not, I'm not, yeah, exactly. Like I, I would be probably a bad engineer, but I, but I, I come up with a lot of ideas for, to make the songs better. Same. Or like, or make the whole album work a little bit more as a cohesive thing. Like for instance, the very beginning of Every Night Fireworks, I have this idea, well, the song starts with just guitar and then I play it and then Mark plays his part and then everybody comes in. And I thought, well, what if we do it so that it sounds like somebody's plugging in one of the guitars and it sounds off, it's not on time. And then another one plugs in in the left speaker. And then when the band comes in, it's, you know, it's all bla guns a blazing. But it's just like, that's the shit that I was coming up with. But then okay. in addition, to weird like production things like that and be like oh this song this part I want to sing in a megaphone or this part I really want to do uh, harmonies here and these are the harmonies I've come up with let's see if they work or this part like I want um, a female vocal here and I want um, some percussion here you know like that sort of stuff it's it's less about that's you know, really in yeah. that's really interesting to me I never knew that yeah. about you I never knew that was that was part of your your process and I, we've talked about oh yeah Song songwriting before, but no, I guess we've never really talked about being in the studio that much. No, that's what that's no, really yeah. interesting. So yeah, after I mean, fast forwarded through like the solo records I did, I did it forever. Like after the loses control sort of thing, it's so funny that now it's called loses control. Amazing, but like, um, <laughs> uh, well, you, you I never even I didn't even it. think about that until now. But yeah, exactly, <laughs> you, you jinxed it. But so I was like, well, I'm never doing that again. I'm gonna so you know the the braid record that we did in 2014, like. Man, I had it all <laughs> for Will <laughs> Yip. I had it all mapped out. So anyway, but yeah, so the, but you know, in, in we were all together pretty happy with how the songs came out per, uh, for Loses Control. And we were ready to get back on the road and, and we did. How was uh, Loses Control received both by the label and by the, the public? I think at this point, we were feeling a little bit let down by Vagrant um, in terms of... I, I don't know. I was getting the vibe that they just weren't interested as interested in pushing the record the way that we were seeing other records push. And not necessarily ones on Vagrant, but just like, you know, like we were like, all right, let's do a video. What's the single? Do this. And there just was not that there wasn't a like this gung ho mentality that we all felt when, you know, the Vagrant America tour was happening and there was this big community and everyone was like together and it was this, this awesome group of people. And then, you know, there are people at Vagrant like James Tweedy and um, Joby and whatever, Rich and all of those people who were like Kevin, who were just like, yeah, psyched, psyched, psyched. And then for some reason, I just was getting so very frustrated because I felt it became a little bit more of a bureaucratic process where uh, there were different gatekeepers at parts of 
the process who could choose to stop you or propel you. And I think it might have been at this point where some of the bands were sort of leaving as well. I, I mean, I yeah, don't that sounds know about that. right. You know what I mean? And so we, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just Vagrant at the time was maybe trying to switch up some things. Maybe if this was like the Interscope days, maybe there was, you know, their hand was involved in some way, but I just didn't see the enthusiasm. And that maybe that, that might have translated to other bands on Vagrant, but it especially made it clear to Ham Mercedes at the time. And we were going on these strange tours. So when we um, were on or when we were doing Every Night Fireworks, uh, Flower was booking us. So it was Suzanne who ended up getting married to Mark. So when we kicked Mark out of the band, Suzanne <laughs> was like, yeah, we're not going to be booking you guys anymore. So we ended up getting booked by a few different people. I think it was Eva for a while at FEDA. It was somebody at the agency group. And so, but we were going on these kind of odd tours. Like we toured with Avail at this point in time. We toured with Avail and uh, All American Rejects was on part of that tour opening. Mm-hmm. Um, we toured with Sensefield um, at the time. And I loved Sensefield, but I was like, man, this is not really, this isn't the like cutting edge sort of tour I want to be doing at the time. And we, we toured, it looks like with Hope's Fall, which was like, you know, a little more of a metal vibe. And then we toured with Wheat, this band Wheat. I don't know if I you remember them. Them. Yeah. They were more like indie rock at the time. And then we ended up getting on um, a long tour with Early November. It looks like Early November, Limbeck and Spittlefield, which I remember being a lot of fun. Yeah, I love, I love the Limbeck guys. Oh, they're awesome. But then the last tour, this was like the last tour Hammer Mercedes did was with Saves the Day, Granddaddy, and the Fire Thefts. And that was, I think, when In Reverie was out. I remember that time period with Saves because it was like they were getting all this like shit for In, in Reverie. And it was kind of like, well, then try to pair them with like more of an indie rock. Yeah. And I think that there was an element of that with a lot of the, a lot of the bands. Apparently, the fan base had gotten real rigid yeah. in that time, and it was just kind of like anything that you did that was kind of different was sort of like you know Dylan goes electric sure, level sure. of betrayal. And it was just I don't know. There was something like in the in the air at mm-hmm. that time where it was kind of like the magic was kind of gone was as on. far as I loved that tour though. I was psyched to, to play with Granddaddy. I loved Granddaddy. <laughs> all good bands, like all you know, all good bands. But I, I do wonder, like you know, when you're talking about like that time period and not feeling like you had the full support of the label. I kind of, I don't, I mean, unless that was like directly communicated, I have to wonder, and I I don't know if I'll ever get a real answer about that. If it's just like they were dealing with Caraba and the juggernaut that he was become, had become. And it's just kind of like, it just takes, takes, because you know, it took precedent over us. It took precedent over, over, you know, saves. It took pressing over the trio. Like, yeah. um, and so I, I have to wonder if, if how much of it was like just circumstantial, you know, like there just wasn't enough manpower to, to yeah. maintain this number of bands when you had to deal with this one, this one act that was like, yeah, blowing you know, up such, and... such a like comet or whatever. So, yeah. I mean, it's possible. I, I mean, unless, unless someone directly communicated it to you that they were, they weren't interested, you know, like that they were. I just, I remember very vividly this particular meeting that we had with Dan. We were at Real Food Daily in LA and Rich was throwing a fit at Real Food Daily because he just, he wanted meat or something like that. I don't know. It was like, he was just so upset that that's where he wanted to go eat for one. And um, we were talking about like doing a Europe tour and, you know, putting together like radio promotions. And this whole time I'm like, 
I can see through them. I can see through this. I was just, I didn't say anything at this meeting because I was fuming. Everyone else was just like, mm-hmm, yeah, ooh, that sounds good, great. Yeah, that's, I'm just like, this is, I, 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 I see through this. Like, this is not, this isn't real. Like, I don't know what they're saying. I can tell they're upset. They're just saying what we want to hear. Like that, I was, I remember leaving that being like, that meeting being like, that was really bad. <laughs> and I, Dan was really mad about um, our booking agent for some reason. He was just... And maybe he was just in a mood, but he was, it was rough that particular meeting. I think there's an element because like, I, I think at this point too, like we were starting to have a hard time, like getting rich on the phone and, and, and mm-hmm. getting, you know, and it was just sort of a, like it started to kind of feel more like a, what, what had been described to me as like a traditional, like major label. Like it was sort of like, yeah. Like it wasn't this like scrappy band of misfits anymore, yeah. you know, and the bands didn't feel, I mean, we were all still friends, you yeah. know, even, even with Caraba, who was, you know, you know, well, well surpassing all of us. And yeah. it's just like with, you know, career success anyway. And it's just, it was just, yeah. And I think the only, the, it's a cliche thing to say, but the easiest way, the best way to describe it is that the magic was gone. Yeah. You know, I'm glad that we were able to have a, a bit of a moment with it, though. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, for sure. But yes, you're right. It was it, w- it was gone. So how did that? How did that? Your relationship with them end? Um, I think it just fizzled. It really just fizzled out because Hey Mercedes stopped just a t- touring. Two record deal, right? Yeah, Hey Mercedes stopped. We didn't even like want to do. Well, what ha- what happened was that was 2004 at this point in time, and Braid decided to do a tour. So Braid mm-hmm. did a full U.S. tour and with Japan too, and so Hey Mercedes was completely put on hold. Mike from Hey Mercedes actually went on the Braid tour and did sound for us. Um, but Do you remember on that tour in the spring of 2004, I quit Get Up Kids, but we still had to do the seven week long dashboard tour. Okay. And I, I would say we hated each other, but I hated them and they hated me. They were all getting along fine. But we came to see Braid play. I think we were playing the university, like some like university stadium in, in Tampa. We played and then we're like, Braid's playing in St. Pete. And it's like, okay, let's get cabs and we'll all go over there. And it's like the one thing we can all agree about. It's like, we want to go hang out with Braid. (laughs) You're never going to guess what day that was. You're never going to guess what day that was. That was June 14th. That was my birthday again. (laughs) Unbelievable. Insane. What what is that then? Like eight years after the seven years yeah. after the day we met? Wow. Your birthday is really prominent in our relationship, apparently. Well, it's right in the summer. So we were talking backstage there, and like all of you guys were just like you were having such a good time and you were getting along again. Yeah. You were like excited to be doing it. And I was just like, I'm so sick of this. I'm so over <laughs> it. I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. And it was just such a like clashing of like yeah. uh, of just like being in such different places in in and I was just kind of like, I don't, I don't want to. Yeah, it was just, it's just kind of an interesting thing. Oh, and then later on that tour, when you played in Lawrence okay. at the Granada, yep. I came out, I hung out with you guys, went home, laid down for an hour, and then my wife went into labor. Oh my gosh. And so we had to, we drove to, that would have been on uh, July, I mean, yeah, let me, it's either on July 30th or July 31st, because he was born on July 31st. Yep, show July 30th. Okay, Granada, yeah. Granada, Lawrence, yep, Murder by death. Well, what's funny is I don't know if we probably didn't have a, I mean, you had a lot on your mind. You probably didn't, we didn't have a heart to heart like we might've had in St. Pete, but at the end of that tour, we were, we hated, we were so pissed at each other. Yeah. <laughs> like Braid, we were just like, yeah, this is not going to work anymore. We like, did the, towards the end of that tour, it was, the shows were getting kind of bad. Hmm. Yeah. Why is that? Don't know. Oh. We did a similar thing where we, uh, in 2000, I don't know, some, maybe 2009, mm-hmm. where it was like, 
Rob was playing in Spoon and we had gotten Get Up Kids back together. And it was just like, okay, we'll go on two, three week tours and, you know, with like a month off in between. And then we'll go to the UK or do Europe for three weeks. And then Rob's wife got pregnant and he was like, okay, I need to have this time off for baby. And then I need, this is the only window I have to do Get Up Kids before Spoon starts up again. So we did like six weeks, like crammed all together. And it was just like, I wanted, we wanted to kill each other. Do yourself a favor. Go back and give those Hey Mercedes records a spin. You won't regret it. I can promise you that. That's it for this episode of Vagrant Records, 25 Years on the Streets. Our next episode, we will begin to tell the story of Dashboard Confessionals, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast and rate it on iTunes. This podcast was produced by Jesse Cannon for Muse Formation, an executive produced by Fred Feldman and Andrew Ellis. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode.